I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. TF3 with TF2 on the weekend, Tuesday. We know we're a little late. We know the analysis might be a little after the fact, but it's fine. Kristen's here to analyze. I'm here to ask many, many questions, and a lot of them have come in over the weekend, and a lot has happened since. Uh, Chris, how are you doing? I'm not bad, thanks. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, A lot's going on, and a lot's been happening in football. Uh, Just this evening, we watched Man City just about edge past Bristol City, Chris, uh, Mm -hmm. as they book their trip again to Wembley. Uh, Bristol came back, I think it was from behind, uh, 2-0 down at one point, to make things nervous for Pep Guardiola's side with the the, the massive names in it. And this, Chris, is why they talk about the magic of Carabao. Yeah, I I thought the game was overall uh, entertaining. I thought it offered a, a lot of insight into ways you can unsettle Manchester City. I think that Bristol's pressing was quite aggressive in the first half, and I think it, it certainly um, caught some of the Man City players off. There was equally, I think, a number of instances where they handled it quite admirably. This, the team overall felt a lot stronger than it did in the first leg, um, and I think Lee Johnson even said as much that it, it felt like the kind of team they would name for a Champions League final. Um I think towards the the second half, you saw maybe just a little bit more of a loosening of the game, um, which cost Bristol in, in the sense that it made them easier to pick off, easier to, to counter on themselves, to break upon, etc. Um, whereas at the same time, I would say actually that, that kind of um, allowed Bristol to really cause some problems in attack. I, I, don't, I didn't think they caused that many issues in the first half in, in Man City's uh, half of things, but when it came to the second period, you saw that that sort of consistency in terms of getting those goals through Pack and Flint. But the problem is, and, and I think you found this with Liverpool as well, is that you can attack City, you can score against them. the The problem is, is that that also opens you up to to being scored against, which is a, a major problem. Yeah, I guess there's a huge parts of this, isn't there? That actually, uh, it's it's there's no there's never really going to be one system which can last so long in football. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, you can't just set up one system and then expect it always to beat every other system. There's going to be adaptations throughout a season. And sometimes, you know, we saw the fallibility of City against uh, Liverpool. And then ironically, 
Liverpool can win against the guys who are very top of the league, but also then lose against the side who, admittedly afterwards, the manager even said, you know, I, I told my side, Liverpool are an F1 team. They're, they're an F1 car. And uh, what we need to do is sit back and stop them from going fast, make traffic around them and essentially, you know, make something which is difficult to get through. And, you know, I think both sides almost came, I mean, Man City came unstuck to some extent, but not the same extent Liverpool did. But it means that teams are using their systems to get the better of what we thought were managers who could think around these sort of things, or at least train their players to think around these kind of things. Yeah, <clears throat> saying that, I did think that in the case of Carvajal, it was it was less an enacted plan and more just a bit of good PR spin from him because you look at look at the chances, statistics on, on that game. Yeah, you look at the number of shots on target, the possession, those kind of things. I think that what he enacted or orchestrated in that game, which feels too grand a term even now, was a fairly deep block. To, to borrow one of Nico's phrases, quite narrow back line that really just shut off space. And I think it was less about what Swansea did and, and more about what Liverpool didn't do or, yeah. or, or can't do, which is sometimes play through lines and, and tight space. And I think if, if Mawson doesn't finish that chance, realistically, we're looking at the entire game as, as being a nil-nil affair because I don't think Swansea really created anything outside of that. Um so yeah, I, th- I think f- for that game specifically, it's becoming something of a trend. I think when teams in that bottom six to seven places come up against the teams in the top six or seven places, which is they look less to try and win the game and more not to lose it, and it's something that I could see des- developing into quite a, a concerning issue for for the Premier League because it is really founded and, and sells itself on the fact that it's entertaining, whereas these 1-0 games really aren't that entertaining when you watch them um, in, in sort of, you know, correlation with, with the rest of the games that finish that way. Yeah, it's interesting because actually there's some other things that happen now in other leagues which we almost consider to be slightly more entertaining, um, especially in Syria and in La Liga now where I know there's, there's a lot, there's many different things to watch outside of the uh, chaos that is the Premier League right now. And it, it, can be a lot of chaos. Liverpool, of course, created their own chaos as well, Chris. Uh, Man City also, of course, find themselves still top of the table by quite a distance. Um, and then, uh, of course, there's Chelsea as well, who, again, got through quite a chaotic game with Brighton to win uh, by, again, by, by, by quite a comfortable margin for them. And I think they easily beat um, the, the South Coast side 4-0 in the end with goals from Hazard and um, Victor Moses as well. I guess there's still this, there's, there's almost a feeling of inevitability about Chelsea though, that this team isn't going to come to fruition this season because uh, just yeah, there's something wrong. Yeah, I think ultimately <clears throat> not everyone is pulling in the same direction. And we've talked about this before, the, the lack of synergy between the first team and, and the developmental elements of Chelsea's infrastructure. Um, I think, you know, almost ironically, I, I would caveat that with the fact that I thought Bacuay, Willian and Hazard linked up fantastically um, during the game against Brighton. You look at Williams' goal being the, the prime example of that, where all three are involved in, in a way that's not only fluid, but I think unstoppable from, from a Brighton perspective. There's not really anything you could 
could do if you reversed the the game and, and gave them a second chance at it. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they, they definitely could have scored more, couldn't they? Yeah, and I think certainly Brighton have, have issue um, or right to take issue with the fact they weren't given a penalty um, for Scalotto's uh, fall against Willie Caballero. Maybe but, two penalties? <clears throat> yeah, maybe even two. I, th- I think there's certainly an issue to be had there, but I think for me, when I watch Brighton personally, um, I think it's very easy to reduce it to the fact that that knockouts form or, or levels of production have dropped off significantly this season. But I think in, in actuality, what you're seeing is um, a sort of replay, if you will, of, of Chris Hewton at, at Norwich City, which was a coach that, again, to go back to, to the point we made a little bit about Swansea and Liverpool, is, is a, a team more concerned about not losing a game instead of trying to win it. And I think his, <clears throat> it's it's not necessarily negative. I think it's almost over-cautious approach um, coming to the fore and, and sort of costing him the opportunity because <clears throat> Brighton are a very good counter-attacking team. I saw that last season, that they could really break on teams and exploit space in, in a very good way. The problem with that is, is that not every team is going to give you that opportunity. And there will also be teams that will will find ways to play through you. And I think part of a Premier League side, or at least one that survives, part of their appeal or success is their ability to to almost scare the opposition. And I don't think they really scare opposition in that same way. Do you think that's partly also the Newcastle problem at the moment? They don't seem to be scaring the likes of... Well, I mean, it's very difficult to say whether they scare Man City or not. Not many teams do scare Man City. But um, do, do you think there isn't much of a fear factor around them, despite the fact that, as we record, they've just signed Kennedy? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I think you can apply that to Huddersfield as well. I think in the first half of the season, Huddersfield were this dynamic um, gig and pressing and other buzzwords I can grab at type of team that would scare opponents because they would be very much in your face and they would turn the ball over quickly and they would find um, an obvious pass and, and spring on you and, and almost wouldn't let you rest with the ball. Whereas I think you look at them now and it's a team that, for me, has lost its spark a little bit. And they did this last season as well. They kind of hit this wall towards the back end of the campaign and and just squeaked into the playoffs. They had minus goal difference um, at one stage after sort of mounting what seemed like a title challenge or at least a promotion challenge, an automatic promotion challenge, excuse me. Um, and I think with Newcastle, it's, it's less been a, a Brighton-type situation and more uh, less of a Huddersfield-type situation and more of a Brighton one where they've been very defensively solid and, and that's admirable and that kind of thing. But I think teams know that as the game progresses, they lose their ability to cause some problems in the final third. And if mm. you can sort of survive that opening wave of pressure from them when there's a little bit of zip and a little bit of zing to them, then there's a good chance that you can actually make the game 1-0 and I think, for me at least looking at it, that's why Rafa Benitez is, is trying to, to get bodies through the door and and you look at Kennedy and you say, okay, maybe that's quite uninspiring it's a Chelsea Loney, it's someone that's not getting regular minutes with them That's those are all fair evaluations of his position at Chelsea but I think what you have to look at is what he gives, which is pace bit of trickery, uh, a fairly aggressive, dynamic runner from a wide position. 
I'll be surprised if Benitez plays him at left back. I think he's got him there in case you know an eventuality arises where he needs a left back or a left footed player who can play there. But I think for me, he'll be played much further forward, and the hope will be that he gives them some kind of of change because I think the same almost applies to Huddersfield and Alex Pritchard. They looked and, and said, "Look, we don't have a number ten, we don't have a creator, so let's go and get that." And I mean, you know, as I think about it now, you could even say the same of Brighton and, and Jurgen Lacardia. They've they've all tried to give themselves something they feel they're lacking, but I think they have greater problems than than those signings can rectify personally. Uh, and obviously, no Gamero, Chris. Everyone got very excited for Gamero. We thought this is on. Uh, no, no, I, I don't think that was ever going to be viable purely from the perspective that he's thirty-one would cost upwards of 20 million and this is before we even try and entertain the thought of him leaving um, a very good football club for for one mired in relegation uh, oh come on though I mean you know that there are positives as well to playing under a, in, first of all in the Premier League playing under Rafa Benitez playing for a club where you're going to be appreciated if you can keep this team up in the second half of the season true but I think it comes at the inherent risk of being relegated. And I think that, again, that, that in itself is, is not something that the players really want. There's there's an arduous war of attrition with a battle against relegation. And I think for some players that, that simply doesn't appeal. Yeah, I guess, I guess as well, though, maybe Rafa Benitez is trying to encourage the team to think that they are not one of the relegation fodder. Um... That's an interesting question because I think Benitez often keeps things very open and honest and he, he's very focused on the the game ahead um, rather than the game two ahead or three ahead. Um, I think Newcastle are in a very strong position right now in so much as they're not in the relegation places. Um, they need their rivals to pick up points and, and they know that that's safe. Two weekends time when they go to Crystal Palace, if they win, that puts them... You know, potentially in the top half and, and I think this season in particular it's tighter than I can remember for a number of years um, in that bottom half and I think realistically come the end of February, March you'll have a much better idea on on who are those four or five scrapping not to be in the bottom three so I, th- I think yeah Benitez is, is probably trying to keep them focused solely on, on what's in front of them instead of worrying about games in April and May it was inevitable that we would get onto the Arsenal factor, Chris. I mean, uh, we can we can probably talk about the result first of all on the weekend. They won four one against Crystal Palace in what felt like a sort of a, a sad formality for Palace as uh, Arsenal pulled away. And some people accused Palace of downing tools, which um, seemed unusual. It just seemed a little bit more like they were poorly prepared and at times shocked by the way that Arsenal played. Weirdly, considering they're all sort of. Um, you know, set pieces, and then after that, some pretty classic Arsenal goals, really. Um, especially with some lovely piece of improvisation from guys who were not Alexis Sanchez. But it seems inevitable uh, that we don't really need to analyse Arsenal on the pitch because it's the off-the-pitch stuff which fascinates people right now. It's everything around that. It's the circus which seems to be created. Um, and, you know, considering that Alexis Sanchez left this weekend, revealed himself playing the piano, um... Of course, why wouldn't he be playing a piano? Uh, I genuinely don't know uh, why he was playing a piano. Um, 
and then going out on the pitch and saying he's been a lifelong United fan, um, all these sorts of things. Uh, it's a, it's fascinating, really. Uh, first of all, a swap deal in the Premier League, which most people said, well, that's never going to happen. You're never going to get a straight swap. That never happens. Uh, it, it does. Uh, and then at the same time, the fact that Arsenal got Mkhitaryan, who so many United fans have been talking up for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah, I think you, you beautifully surmised the situation there. I think in many ways that's been the uh, the intriguing element of this for me is to see essentially two sides trot out their respective propaganda about why they've got the better half of this. And I think for me personally to, to look at it, I think both teams really got the best possible outcome because Manchester United, I think, wanted something a little bit different in attack. I think they wanted someone who perhaps could be an individual that drives the team forward. We've seen that with, with Alexis when he was at Arsenal. There were moments where, I think, to the Cologne game in, in the Europa League specifically, where he very much picked the team up and dragged them forward. I think that's kind of what Mourinho wants in in the final third, where that fits positionally or where that sort of sprouts positionally, I think is, is still to be determined. Yeah, I see. And at, and at the same time, I, I think... Mick is a great it, signing for Arsenal. He, he really is. And I, and I think, look, you could have taken the fee that, that Manchester City were offering if, if he'd been able to agree a deal with, with Man City. But 25, 30 million, that's 35 at, at most. I don't know if that gets you a player of Mkhitaryan's potential quality, um, given the, the way that the market has fluctuated so aggressively the last 18 to 24 months. So, as I say, I think it's it's very easy to make out like Man United are the winners in this one because you know they've got this player on form who theoretically changes the way their attack lines up. But I actually think for Arsenal it's the best possible outcome that they could have, have wished for. I mean, do you, uh, it is definitely going to change. We'll, we'll, I look forward to the... There's a lot of tactical breakdowns online. I think you know, both teams got the best out of what was a very painful and uh, awkward situation for some of the parties involved. Mkhitaryan on one side and then obviously uh, the Arsenal fans and Alexis on the other. Um, th- of course, Chris, there's also the the outgoing at Watford, which seems interesting at this point, doesn't it? Because... Uh, for, for a very long time, we thought, well, you know, Marco Silva's going to have a bit of a challenge anyway. We didn't see it being this much of a challenge, if anything. I think a lot of people put Watford quite high up in the table with Marco Silva as the manager. But then when this big offer came along from Everton, Watford have been, ever since, sort of very transparent about the way that that affected the club. And it was unusual to see sort of how transparent they almost openly acknowledged where they were in the table, what impact the approach from Everton had um, and it I don't know there was some, it, it made people almost feel uncomfortable the way that they acknowledged it in the press release that they put along with Marco Silva leaving the club um, and some people now also say Arsenal this is the perfect time to let Arsenal and Wenger step down bring someone like Marco Silva in and begin to be a more pragmatic changing club which could be one of many plans yeah, I, I think Watford's uh, statement spoke to a club that was frustrated, frustrated that their potential plans had been derailed. I think ultimately, yeah, 
this is a club that operates on a very short-term MO. Um, you look at the chains from, from Kiki Sanchez-Flores and and those performs, even Slovisa Jukanovic, who, um, you know, it seemed would take them into the Premier League, but didn't ultimately. Um, I think the, the frustrating part came that they weren't ready to let go in that moment. In, in many ways, it was always a marriage of convenience, Silver and Watford, because I think Silver had aspirations far higher than Watford. Um, do, do you think before, Stoker at all angry about the timing of uh, Watford? Uh, letting Kike Sanchez Flores go. Do you think Watford was sort of like, wait until they fill that position, wait until Lambert's gone there, then bam, we let him go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I think think possibly, I mean, look, Silver's reputation is, is an intriguing one right now because... 12 months ago he was potentially seen as as one of if not the most exciting managers in English football um he was the mini Mourinho and I think mini the problem Mourinho. is is that, that that ambition to to be at the top level is ultimately what cost him because I don't think he thought pragmatically himself when it came to the situation with Everton because really I think Everton from Watford is essentially the same job but with greater financial clout whereas if he had perhaps played his cards right he could have got that Arsenal job now there's still a chance that he gets that position um, I guess it's just problematic in a way because you sort of think well although yeah I, I don't think I think Watford were a very unique example weren't they and people are talking as if there's maybe a black mark on his card because he you know he wanted to leave the club and you know he Essentially, what people are saying, almost criticizing for, is he wanted to chase uh, climbing the table uh, ra- uh, by swapping clubs rather than by just taking Watford up. Uh, and I guess part of the problem is, Chris, that a lot of people they judge the status of Everton, they judge the status of Watford, and they think, well, how many points difference are those teams going to finish on? How many places difference are those teams going to finish on with different managers? And they sort of think, well, if Marco Silva is destined for a, an Arsenal or a, you know someone around that level, um, why would he go to an Everton? Why not go? Why not go to that next, just slightly higher tier of clubs? Yeah, I, I can see that. I think, as I say, what this position with Watford has done is perhaps brought into question him a little bit in a, in a negative light as you as you reference there 
because ultimately it's painted him as someone that's point of fault but also now that he's left you shine a light on the situation in its totality which was he wasn't happy with the uh, the delegation of, of responsibilities when it came to transfers he wanted more power he wanted more say now let's hypothetically say that he was to go to Arsenal given they've just implemented a, a structure that does remove a certain degree of power from Arsene Wenger is he going to be willing to work with that is that going to be seen as something that will perhaps dissuade a club from approaching him. The fact that more and more you're seeing clubs move towards that model with a, a director of football or some kind of committee or council in which signings are weighed up. Um, it's very rare, I think, now, Guardiola perhaps being the, the one major exception where a manager is allowed to sign with complete free reign. Um, now, in fairness to, to Silva, he pushed hard for Richarlison, who has turned out to be a, a very good player. Um, <clears throat> but also, I think, yeah, his, his once perceived uh, adaptability or pragmatism when he was at Hull seems less prevalent with this Watford job because of the way that it's all unfolded. And I think that is perhaps what will, will cost him more than anything. Obviously, I referenced uh, Stoke just a few seconds ago. Great, some people thought. Finally, we can talk about the refreshing approach of Paul Lambert in the Premier League. Because for many years, we, we thought of Paul Lambert as this maybe slightly outdated, maybe a kind of Paul Jewel, Paul Jewel-esque character. In time, we sort of see that he needs maybe little breaks in between. Because between those, he gathers life, Chris, injects it into a side, gets them to a certain level... And then leaves. It's Stoke. I, I I do think I do think personally I'm a little bit wary of jumping from one pole to another on this one because I think yes it was a fantastic win. They outplayed the Huddersfield side that as we've discussed are, are quite poor. At the same time I think yes there's credence to the notion of, of taking a break of stepping back reassessing your practices and and refining that process because I think that has worked for, for coaches in the past. I think you look at Alan Pardew who after a spell away with Southampton came back and, and had arguably his, his best performance as a manager mm. um, early on at, at Newcastle. Um, I think at the same time it's, it's going to take a little bit more than that. I think it's it's not terribly dissimilar for me to situation with, with Carlos Carvajal where yes you can beat Liverpool at home and that's fantastic but using the, the same methodology, surely you, you should have beaten Newcastle away from home, who were a significantly worse team than, than Liverpool. I think to, to that end, I should almost, almost need a little bit more um, data or experience before I can, can come to a conclusion on, on the situation with, with Paul Lambert, because I think, yes, it's a, a fantastic start, but I don't know if it's proved anything conclusively. Elsewhere, other leagues are... Uh, roaming along as well, uh, Roma and Inter drew uh, one all at uh, Giuseppe Miazza in San Siro. Juventus, obviously, the top of their league, but Napoli also top of their league because Napoli got the win against Atalanta as well. Chris, there's still worry, worries that this uh, Napoli team will drop away because of the, the thin squad that they have. Um 
but, but at least they're still challenging. And at least they're still in a position where people are forced to question that rather than saying they've already dropped away. And there's something very encouraging about that because in previous seasons, by this point, we are, well, we're, we're not seeing... Uh, we're not seeing many people challenging events in the way that we need to see them challenging. And there's, there's something about the, that satisfying one point between the two sides. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I think that's a, a fair estimation of things. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I've just got to say, I'm just really excited by Napoli this season. Although that might be because my local barista isn't a Napoli fan and uh, just shares genuine uh happiness every time that they they win on the weekend um elsewhere of course uh real madrid finally got an absolute thrashing of a side deportivo la Coruña, uh took a beating with cristiano ronaldo getting two gareth bale getting two nacho also getting two uh in a 7-1 win obviously for real madrid maybe they need to build this head of steam uh but we'll see what's going on there as well obviously barcelona also got the massive win as well against real batiste five goals None of them Coutinho, uh, in that Coutinho didn't play because he's still injured. Uh, Luis Suarez obviously getting two, Messi getting two. Something about scoring two this weekend if you're in uh, La Liga. Um, and there's, uh, I guess the frustration, uh, Chris, is that when we thought that either of these teams may or may not be uh, dropping away... We, we thought maybe a Valencia or someone like that could... Uh, could get in, maybe Atletico Madrid could catch uh, someone at the top, but Re- uh, Barcelona are 11 points clear of the nearest rival being Atletico Madrid. And Real Madrid are, I, I think it's, uh, are they 19 points off the top? So it, it, they're just not going to catch this uh, this Barcelona team this season. And we're probably going to see this Barcelona team cruise to a title. Yeah, I think we are. And for that, I think Valverde deserves immense credit. Um, right. But then other, everyone else has let them get to that point. Um, yeah, to a, to a certain degree, I, th- I think that's um, I think that's a, a fair estimation of things. I, I think one of the things that, that strikes me about Real Madrid is the uh, the regression in the supporting cast. I think, yeah, Ronaldo is is not having the the kind of season that he he normally does in La Liga um, in the Champions League. He's pretty much on form from from everything I can see in terms of his, his goals ratio and, and what I've seen. But I think you look at the, the absence of, of players like Hamez and Morata, you're seeing what is, to me at least, a drop in the quality of, of supporting cast. And I think that was, uh, that to me was pretty much one of the strongest elements of um, the Real Madrid squad last year. You just need to look at the, the Champions League final and the influence mm. that someone like Asensio Hyde coming on and, and scoring Gordon Real Madrid had real good depth that I think has, has lost them. Yeah. Certainly looking interesting over there. I'm looking forward to those Champions League games as we come back to those. It's going to be uh, it's just going to be some great action. I'm really looking forward to that PSG Real Madrid game. It's setting itself up quite nicely, Chris, as well, because Neymar doesn't seem like all that much of a popular figure right now in uh, League 1. I there are even rumours that he might even end up at Real Madrid uh, at some point. It's it's actually really quite fascinating to look at the dynamic uh, that he leaves behind because it almost seems, and I, I know other journalists have been speaking about this, but it, it seems 
as if Neymar almost doesn't really care about the legacy that he leaves behind at clubs because he's just sort of sailing through them. It's about Neymar. It's not about, you know, maybe if you go to Napoli, you see Maradona. If you go to Barcelona, you'll see Messi. If you go to Liverpool, you'll hear about Gerard. You'll hear about, uh, who was the last Everton legend? Thomas Graveson. Um, you know, you'll hear about all these players and you'll you'll think, wow, he really left an impact on this city. It doesn't seem the same with PSG and Neymar. No, that, I don't think um, I don't think that was the intention of the relationship. I think it was uh, a situation in which it was two parties that had shared goals, not not necessarily linked to anything other than them wanting to win the Champions League. Um, I think the reasons were, were slightly different, and yet eerily similar because I think they wanted to elevate themselves through that achievement in so much as I think Neymar wanted to distance himself from, from Messi and, and the supporting cast that played a role in them winning the Champions League against Juventus whereas for PSG it was about being taken seriously mm. um, I don't think anyone ever contested Neymar was was a world class talent but it was often seen that his achievements were in part due to the performances of those around him whereas I think for, for PSG, they want to to feel as if they are at the elite level and until you win the Champions League, I think it's it's an often tried out um, criticism that, that those who haven't done that can't really be considered elite. Or maybe not also when you're, when you're not beating uh, your nearest rivals who are eight points off you, off the top. On the weekend, obviously PSG fell uh, 2-1 to Olympique Lyon. They only have got a, uh, a sort of... A, I don't know, this uh, mishmash of a side, you know, they've been, they've, they've got Nebel Fakir in there, Chris. Uh, and then obviously it feels like they're sort of, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, we, we felt like they were much more powerful against these PSG sides. And obviously they won on the weekend, which is fantastic for them. But um, Neymar didn't even start killing him. Mbappe came off with an injury. Uh, this PSG team, to me, Chris, still doesn't seem like... The, the, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it seem like for all of the effort and money spent, still doesn't seem like there's very much to be satisfied with this PSG side. It seems a little uh, empty. There seems to be a little, there seems to be a lack of heart. Um, I think I think it, it really does fluctuate between two poles, and, and at the core of that is a sense of apathy towards the situation because. PSG have, have spent more on a player than most clubs, if not all clubs in France, spend on their entire summer business. Right. Um, they cherry picked the their great, you know, the the title rivals' best player last season in Kylian Mbappe, and it, it almost feels a little bit soulless when they when they do win or when they do put six or seven past an opponent because it's almost what you expect. You know, there's there's no great achievement in doing that. Um, at the same time, I think. When they do lose, it, it almost again it feels irrelevant because they're still going to take the, the league and title realistically come the end of the season. Mm. Um, and I think in, in watching them, you see a team that has spent a staggering amount of money, and yet at the same time, personally, I don't see them winning the Champions League this season. Um, I see a team that has still fairly heavy deficiencies. Um, I don't think. Levin Kozawa is a left back of the quality needed. I think central midfield they still have issues. 
Um, defensively as a whole, I'm a little bit sceptical about how they handle big situations. And I do think, looking back now at their Champions League group, it, it seemed like it was actually a little bit misleading because, yes, they had the champions of Scotland, Bayern Munich and, and Anderlecht, but really Anderlecht have been very much off the pace this season. Uh, Celtic rarely have a, a difficult game domestically. Um, and and Bayern's games were, were punctuated by the fact that the first one was before Heinkes came back and the second was after. And I think I take more from those results than I do from perhaps the, the 7-1 demolition of, of Celtic. Yeah, certainly an interesting... I mean, yeah, when that 7-1 de- demolition of Celtic, it's just refreshing to see some good football. Um, I, uh, I the, the thing is, Chris, obviously we, we want to make a longer podcast, but... Uh, we are not joined by uh, the likes of Nico, the likes of Dave, the likes of Adam, uh, as we've we've tried and promised uh, we would at some point. Uh, but we do we do sort of have some points to cover from the weekend when um, different people have tweeted in. Uh, there have been a few replies to us so far, Chris. I mean, one of them, which I'm really interested to talk to you about, is the idea of uh, a lot of people tweeting us about the idea of, in inverted commas here, austerity Chelsea. Um, now with... Uh, the the Port and Fred both rumoured to be signing for Man City in January after an incredible transfer window in the first place. Conte seems to be going the opposite way, the, the current champions, if you like, against the champions-elect spending, and saying Sanchez wages were something they couldn't compete with Manchester United and Man City for, and that he thought it was, and I think this is a direct quote, a miracle that Chelsea won the league uh, just last season. It's... Interesting, isn't it? How far, um, how, uh, how how Conte is trying to keep this Chelsea team competitive in some way because it seems a lot like he's fighting an upward, uh, an uphill battle. At the same time, though, uh, he can't get Andy Carroll. He can't get any of these English guys. Uh, not that it seems like he wants them because of the laugh, laughing at his press conference. It seems to be a lot of confusion around the club right now. A lot of mixed messaging. And a lot of people are very confused as to whether Conte and the future of the club is stable enough to even attract players. Yeah, I think that is one of the issues, is that you're potentially signing for a club and a coach that may not be there in the summer. Um, I think, as we've talked about before, there's a a certain issue in terms of Chelsea needing some form of long-term stability. Now, there are a few different ways to go about that. One of them is to appoint a long-term manager. I think another one is to actually define how the football club plays um, and then yeah, approach coaches accordingly who will um, you know, keep, keep things or keep the continuity there. I think that's difficult for Chelsea, though, because they have preferred to operate on a way that's a little bit more ad hoc, whereas whoever they feel will deliver the results they need, that's who they, they feel is is the, the prime candidate. It's, it's quite Machiavellian in that sense. Um, and I think it, it will eventually, and I think we'll maybe starting to see the first sprouts of it here, have an impact on the players that they can sign because not every player wants to, to run that risk of, of being there and, and say like Michi Bacuay or someone like that, have a situation where they can't find their own continuity because the club has next to none itself. Well, I imagine if I was Morata, I'd be a little annoyed. Um, all the rumours I don't quite know what someone like Marata might be thinking Um, but he has had 
very little support this season if he does have, even if though he does have a fantastic player around him. Um, it seems as if Conte speaks in a, in a quite a defeated attitude right now. Um, and I wonder if that's because he knows that he doesn't really have to maintain this side much longer. Um, it certainly is an interesting one. I'll be interested to see where the Conte is there next season, especially considering the current state of AC Milan and where they're going, etc., etc., etc. Chris, anything else interesting going on in the football world that you'd like to cover? Uh, on the other weekend. Yeah, how did that happen? Through youth and exuberance, I think more than anything. Um, Chris Coleman's trusted a lot of the the club's development squad, uh, Joel Soro, Josh Meyer, people like that, and and they've come to the fore, which I think uh, you know credit to them for for seizing the opportunity. VR, VAR has obviously been uh, confirmed at the World Cup. Chris, uh, good news for some, bad news. For others, uh, it's going to be sponsored even better. Now we can see uh, people get furious at a brand for VAR uh, outside of getting furious at referees. Uh, surely it will be better by the time we get to the World Cup. There'll be some kinks uh, ironed out. Uh, I would hope so, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it's an emerging technology in, in the context of football. Video. Um, because, because there are nuances to that. Um, Do you think they're using VHS? <laughs> possibly, um, but I think it's it has a, a process of refinement. Of course, that's that's fairly normal. It's just whether we have the patience to see that through. I think is is the most important thing um, because I think we're quite demanding at the best of times as a sport, and and you know, instant gratification is is a central uh, theme of that. And so it's it's a case of whether we can can wait through that for, for the potential benefits that it will bring. Mm. It's exciting stuff uh, for this World Cup, but we'll we'll see. Uh, I'll be interested to see how they implement it, etc., etc. Uh, it's certainly getting uh, more interesting by the day as we get towards the World Cup. We've got a couple of uh, months. Will certain players be fit? Uh, will certain players even make it into the squad? It's worth uh, keeping an eye at least across who's going to be in the England team. We very rarely do we know. Chris, it was interesting to see uh, Alexis Sanchez take number seven at Manchester United, wasn't it? Because obviously some United fans claim it's cursed. Um, other United fans... Apparently it's uh, Michael Owen who can uncurse it. Um, other fans saying he follows in a great line and a long line of fantastic number sevens. If you were to move to a new club, you got a choice of your number, what number would you, would you go for? Uh, 10, I think. You do... I'd put you with it slightly deeper than a 10, though, but I, I see why you want it. Uh, yeah, I mean, 10, 6, whatever, whatever works for it. I like you as a 6. <laughs> said that in a nightclub once. Yeah. Um, You're a perfect 10. But, uh, yeah, I think... Um, I think for, for, for Liverpool... Uh, for Manchester United, excuse me, the, the number seven is, uh, yeah, it, it is and it isn't quite an illustrious number. I think it, personally, I don't think it's always had the, that same relevance. It's had great players, but it, it feels like more that that was a coincidence and, uh, and well, not a, Michael Owen. a habit. Uh, and, and, and Angel Di Maria and 
I mean, you know, Beckham, obviously, and then you think of uh, all the greats that have gone just before that. Um, obviously, there are some fantastic names in there, I think, as well. And you think of uh, some of the greats, Georgie Best, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it'll be interesting to see uh, how those guys uh, get on over there at Manchester United. He, uh, he might make his debut Friday night. I think it's in the FA Cup, which is why we're not doing the kickoff this weekend. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. You can get in your Q's and your A's uh, for later this week. Maybe you want to ask a Q. Maybe you want to give an A. Uh, if you do want to give an A to this podcast, go and rate it uh, five stars. The more stars you give, the more likely Dave, Nico and Adam are to appear on the podcast. So please do go and uh, give it a review over there. Chris, if people want to go find your work, uh, there's a lot of places online to find it. Is there anything uh, in particular you would recommend they read this week? Uh, I'm in the midst of writing something about Phil Neville getting the England job. Uh, following all the Twitter uh, issues? Yes. Um, and just in general, the, the cronyism that surrounds it. Uh, interesting. Okay, yeah. it's certainly going to be interesting. Uh, he deleted his uh, account as dubious tweets. He said... Uh, he is said to have sent Emerge, former Everton captain, honoured to be named women's coach. Uh, certainly an interesting one. Um, apparently, yeah, there's a lot of interesting tweets he sent here. Uh, a message. No, there's all sorts of unusual things. Uh, I would rather that we know that these are um, legit before going into them. Uh there are battered women mentioned in them, for instance. Uh, and it seems, yeah, it's an unusual move. We'll give him that. Uh, let's see. Uh, go read Kristen's article to get a start, and then we'll go We'll go from there. Uh, and until Thursday, when we'll be doing the Q&A, uh, enjoy your week. Let us know on the Twitter, at the front three, what your thoughts are on the current state of football, what you want to uh, hear discussed. And we'll see you again real soon right here on the front three. 